Welcome to the Shrink Think Podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Nathan. And we're both licensed professional counselors in Oregon here to open up our lives and minds with you. We'll share some of our experience as counselors, business owners, and most important of all, as everyday people. Hey, welcome to our show. We're excited to conclude the three points of the triangle uh, today of the fear triangle. We're going to talk about the victim role. We'll spend the next episode after this kind of putting it all together and talk about getting off of the triangle because obviously once you're on, it's just an infinite loop around, which is no fun. But today we want to talk about what it means to be a victim on the triangle Now, as it's always been drawn, the victim, it's like an upside down triangle with a point at the bottom. You've got the persecutor on one point, the rescuer on the other point up high, which are like the power over positions or like the powerful positions because nobody wants to be a victim. Nobody wants to be like, oh, I'm bad or it's my fault and I'm the one who's really hurt because that's, you know, frankly, an awful position to be in. But the victim on the triangle is the one that's at the bottom because that's ultimately what a victim says. And I guess I want to kind of start out by differentiating, like, what does it mean uh, to be a victim versus being victimized? A lot of times we've had experiences, you know, you can, you can look at the primary wounding of the persecutor or the rescuer of abandonment, betrayal, or unacceptance or rejection. And those woundings are pretty bad and pretty awful. But if we've had one of those experiences and we say, oh, I was victimized, that really hurt me, but here's what I did to kind of recover and heal from it, that's victimization. I mean, it's still a bad thing, but you were able to recover from that somehow and maintain or rearrange your sense of self and identity. And then obviously your relation to the world. But when you have been a victim, oftentimes I think these things happen over and over again to where you've abandoned, you've completely let go of that idea of I can recover from this and there is some semblance of myself that's good. And so ultimately on the bottom of the triangle, the victim says, no, you're right. I am worthless. Uh, Nathan, what would you have to say about that? Yeah, I think... um So one of the things that you teased with at the end there, Aaron, was that each point of the triangle actually is a form of victim. What I like to say is that the rescuer and persecutor are kind of more action uh, that we take in order to kind of disbelieve that we are a victim. Whereas the victim, the action it takes is to to get your attention by just simply being the victim. The irony is, is they're all coming from a place of fear, which is the, which is the problem. And so I'll say, um, when I picture again that uh, four-year-old that's standing behind the clothing rack, just doing something, messing around, and then comes out from underneath the clothes, and mom's gone. And mom's not really gone; she's like maybe ten feet away. But in that moment, that four-year-old is like, "Wow, I'm worthless." And I'm not going to say that's some cognitive conclusion a four-year-old's coming to, but as that type of fear grows over time it starts to take different shapes where we end up going back to that stuff. That's why us therapists are always going back to childhood related things. I think of simply put, there's back in the day, sometime in your childhood, you're hurt psychologically, physically, or both. You'll say one of two things to yourself, or one of three things to yourself. One would be like, I'm never going to let that happen again. That would be the persecutor. The rescuer would say something like, well, maybe if I do this, it won't happen again. 
And a victim will go like, well, I deserved it. I suck. Yeah, and just to go back a little bit, I think it's helpful, at least for, you know, my personality type and a lot of people kind of maybe who are more intellectual, like to understand kind of how things are going on, uh, what's going on behind the scenes, what are the mechanics of it. You know, you talk about having these experiences that happen from a young age and the way that you make sense of them is by, you know, saying something to yourself. I think that's a little misleading from the standpoint that a four-year-old doesn't have any self-awareness. They're not really saying these things to themselves. What I've always described to people is that four-year-old walks out from behind the clothes. They have an immediate realization of like, where's, where's mom? She's not there. And that emotional feeling is kind of like a big flood that washes over them. And so if you imagine like this big wave of water crashing over you, and if you just posit it, you know, at the top where the water is completely over your head and you're dunked under the water, somewhere in that experience, your brain in a split second has made sense of what's going on, has, without you knowing, made a statement about what's going on, like I'm worthless or, you know, this is the worst thing in the world, I can never let this happen again or whatever. And it's that little, I call it little encoded message in those emotions. So like that wave is your emotion and that little encoded message, that statement is the belief you have about yourself or life or the world. And so then if you hit pause, you know, the wave crashes over you and maybe you start to panic, you're in fight or flight. And then every time that you're in that situation, or maybe it's you're you're feeling that feeling of um, being lost or being alone or being abandoned, it brings up that both that same physiological feeling in your body as well as that same belief that is unconscious you might not even know is happening. Right. There's a couple of things I was thinking about while you were saying there that you made me think about. One is that the biology of children is the same as adults. So what I mean is that a terror, a terrifying situation that you could get into as an adult may be very different because you're not scared like you used to be when you were a kid. But the physiology going on is identical. The way that you would be so scared that you would forget everything now might be a crazy situation. Then you'd go, wow, I'd be scared of that. But, oh, he's just a kid, you know, that kind of thing. Well, for that kid, that physiology is the same. And so what's happening in that moment is there's a logging or a crystallization of a bunch of uh, neurons coming together that are holding on to this environment that they have found dangerous. And now they're going to be, the brain is going to be on a meaning hunt for that for the rest of your life to help understand that and to stay out of danger. And so everything that mom or dad has said, little statements here or there, you just, or blah, 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 that kid's going to take that statement and go, oh, that's why this thing happened or whatever, right? And you're just going to build on that. Like it's just reinforcing that thing from all different angles, burying that deeper and deeper and deeper into you. And you don't even realize that it's going on. I'll jump ahead just a little bit. You know, when I talk about these um, fear statements, you know, I'll have you kind of explain what that is. But right now, we're just talking about this little phrase or this belief that has developed in you. You might not know it's there, but if you can learn to pay attention to your thoughts, you know, doing some mindfulness or some journaling or whatever, what you'll find is that in even moments today, like something uh, bad happens to you, you'll probably find yourself thinking the same kind of thought or even saying out loud, like, of course this would happen to me. This always happens to me. Or like, oh, this is so unfair. 
something like that is like coming from your gut. You know, if you find yourself saying that kind of phrase, probably it's connected to something whether you know it or not. And we don't have to get into like, what was the time where, you know, I was abandoned at the gro- at the grocery store? Like, that doesn't matter, like when it was. The deal that we're trying to get you to understand is that it did happen and it's in you. And if you identify with the victim or if you're on the triangle at all, you need to know what this is so that you can do something about it. One of the things that I realized a few years ago when doing this, that to try to get at more helping people off of the triangle with more detail was to develop what uh, you and I have now called a fear statement. And essentially what it is, is it's trying to understand a point of fear back in your history, whenever that was, and then try to understand what meaning that you put behind it. So what I'll tell a client or whatever is I'll say, okay, so let's just take a rescuer, for example. I'll say, so when was the last time that you can remember in stuff that's happened throughout your life? And I've already asked them, let's say that their fear is more of rejection. I'll say um, that you feel rejected. Where you go, Nate, this is it. This is the pure form. This is the perfect example of this rejection that I'm trying to explain to you. And we'll sit there for a while. And oftentimes this is where like, quite frankly, some of those sessions are, this is why I got into therapy because everybody's on a hunt. You know, it's like, I often compare it to like a mushroom hunt, like in the middle, you know, I've hunted mushrooms before. I know they grow in the dark behind trees, but I don't know exactly which tree we're going. And maybe this client doesn't know where they're going. They just know like, okay, I'm kind of going in there and we can kind of work together to go like, well, that's not quite what we're looking for. We're looking for more something like this. And it can take an hour or two to actually find a fear statement. It's not, it's not something that's just readily available. I'll mash up a couple stories to protect identities. I had one person that would tell me, Kind of quickly, actually, I want to say in the first 15 minutes, he was like, well, I know what mine is. I'm, I'm worthless. And so I'm like, well, I mean, I knew this person pretty well. And I knew that like, they just didn't feel right. And that's the thing when you're connected to somebody, it just didn't feel right. They're like, there's something else there. And it was too easy for him to say. And so not that we're trying to like, just drill on you all the time. No, but I, I think what you're getting at is sometimes we have like maybe a cognitive awareness of like a top layer of something. But when you get down into that deeper layer, it's so well protected that it's often if you haven't done this kind of work already, you probably don't really know what it is. And that that gets back to that mushroom hunt. Later, he was reflecting on how he had basically been kind of taken for granted on purpose, kind of like just actually victimized for real. And he realized that um, he, he goes, you know, it's not that I'm worthless is that I'm not worth loving. And that's when he cried and teared up. And now us therapists are not always going for the cries, but the fact is that was almost shocking to him to realize like, oh, that's why. So now take this in application, right? So he's sitting at a board meeting. Okay. This is a true story. He's sitting in a board meeting, like probably inside of two weeks. And one of the things about fear statements, the reason why we do them is to help the person. I tell him like, look, just trust that this fear statement is right, which means that when you are rescuing somebody, and by that time, the person already kind of knows what that is, they kind of know what they're doing, assume that you are doing it because of that fear statement. Just make, just jump and make the assumption. So he's sitting in this board meeting and he's not saying anything. He's getting a little bit, not irritable, but he's like, you know, we're talking about the same thing. This is kind of dumb. And then he realizes he's not saying anything. Then he realizes, oh, he's rescuing. And then he's like, I'm rescuing because 
I'm afraid I'm not worth loving from these people? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. So he stands up, doesn't stand up, but he, he starts talking. He said, Nate, they all looked at me like I was a space alien. Like, you don't talk. You're a guaranteed vote. And it was like all of a sudden everything changed. And actually what ended up happening was is he became more vocal. He found out how talented he was, and they actually promoted him to do something totally different in another part of the state. Wow. So... I mean, this isn't like a guaranteed outcome. If it is, I guess you can send your money to an envelope here. No, it's not a guaranteed outcome, but it sounds like it's so transformative. You know, like I said in previous episodes, I like to make the implicit explicit. Once you can bring something out of the dark and move it into the light, you can see what it is. It no longer has the same power over you. It just is what it is. Even if it's something ugly, you know, a, a car accident that's fatal can be pretty ugly, but that's all it is. Like, but when you're in your imagination and you're, you know, feeling afraid of, you know, unacceptance, rejection, betrayal, whatever it is, your imagination can go wild. But when you actually pin it down with words that this is what it is and this is what I'm going for, as I've said before, it kind of makes it seem ridiculous. Like, I'm not saying he didn't feel any, you know, sensitive feelings, but it seems like he was like, wait a minute, I- I'm wanting that from these guys? No, no. But yeah, that's kind of what it's really about. Well, he, <laughs> he mentioned that he's like, they're not even my family members, you know? Like, <laughs> so like, I'm like, yeah. Because ultimately, that fear, this is kind of why I guess Aaron and I are so passionate about this in a way is because... The fear is controlling so many things in your life for no reason. Like there's things that like you would agree and anybody else that was telling you about their own life, you'd be talking about, nothing to be afraid of, you know, but looking at your own self, it's always, it's always harder. And plus there's aspects of that that you don't know. So you have to get past all of that and actually start stating where you're at again, compromising with the intent to maybe compromise the situation instead of the actual, instead of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, as you're describing having this fear statement and really trying to defend against it, I just want to jump in and say that's exactly what these other points of the triangle are. That's what it means to be a persecutor. You know, a persecutor at its core is a victim kind of a persecutor. They don't want to actually be a victim victim. They want to do whatever they can kind of in reaction to that to protect against that hurt or that wounding. And a rescuer wants to do the same thing, but just in their own rescuing kind of way, because nobody wants to admit, yeah, that hurt and I am whatever this belief is. And so really the core of on the the fear triangle, the victim role is accepting and recognizing that this has happened to me and it's hurt. And ultimately, you know, when we talk about uh, maybe couples going around and around on the triangle, you, people can take different roles where one can start out maybe as a persecutor. And when that person says something kind of harshly, it puts the other person as a victim. And that person might resent that and take over the persecutor role and say, how dare you say that to me? And when they do that, they're kind of persecuting the persecutor. And so the persecutor is now relegated down into the victim role. And maybe that person, you know, decides, well, I don't want to be a victim. So I'm going to pacify. I'm going to become the rescuer. Oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to blah, blah, blah. And 
when they start to rescue, you see that first person move down into the victim role of like, oh, I really hurt you and I, you know, whatever. And they don't like that either. So they move back up to the persecutor and say, well, you always do that. You blah, 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 blah. You know, maybe just ream that person, which sends that rescuer back down into the victim role. And then the whole triangle ends maybe when that rescuer in this case, the person who was a rescuer now says, you're right, I'm sorry, I just, oh, I'm so, uh, whatever, like, I'm a victim, this happened to me, it's all my fault, whatever they're going to say, that's when the conflict is over, but really nothing has been resolved, because all you've really done is you've established, okay, I'm a persecutor, and I'm a victim, or I'm a rescuer, and I'm a victim, and that ultimately doesn't really help anything, it just reinforces those wounds over and over. So one of the things I don't remember if I said in the beginning that kind of gets at what you're saying is that the, the the triangle itself is actually pretty addictive. And the reason why is because it is an excellent emotion changer. But the problem is, is that it is a horrible emotion manager because it ultimately cares nothing about the truth. So everybody's going back and forth to try to get somebody to feel differently so we can feel like we have an impact and then therefore feel like we are safe and we're okay and we're connected. The irony of it is, is that impact is being okay with the other person compromising who they are. And then we're calling that like, okay, we're good and we're connected. The other person is walking away happy with the fact that there's a connection feeling and that the fight is over. But you're not any farther down the road and trying to move through some of these things. I guess the other thing, I've said it a few times, we, we haven't got there yet, which makes sense based on our progression here, but that you can't persecute a persecutor or rescue a rescuer or be more of a victim than a victim. And what that's about is those are the times, you know, as you guys have been processing through these, uh, these shows or listening or however, you probably have identified with all of the roles and that's normal. And the truth is we've, everybody that you know has done some of this. And I might just interject really quickly. I found that people can take on a certain role in one relationship or one set of relationships and then the other role on a different relationship or in a different set of relationships. So you're right, absolutely. I can kind of see myself in, you know, a rescuer role here or a persecutor role there. Right. And so the idea that um, that I would add in there is that we are, we all have a proneness to a, like what I call a home base. And it's kind of the place that we just go in order for absolute control of our, of our emotions, of our fear statement. From the fear triangles perspective, it's the role that we trust the most to manage that fear statement, essentially. Yeah, can you flesh that out a little bit more? That's a really packed statement. So the classic example, when Cartman made this up, uh, came up with the triangle years ago. He did it in the context of alcoholic families. So if we just use, we'll just use an alcoholic family. So we'll make Bob the persecutor. Okay, I think he was also the hermit, so we might as well keep them together. So Bob's drunk. It's 2 a.m. and he's at the bar. And the bartender basically kicks him out. He can't get a ride. And he doesn't want to call his wife. But the bartender calls his wife and gets her down there. Now, she's rescuing him at that point. But she's not going to have a conversation with him because she's not dumb. It's not going to go anywhere. But she doesn't know who's going to get up in the morning. Is it going to be Bob the victim or Bob the persecutor? So she's making breakfast and she pushes the button. She needs to know. So she's like, so rough night, huh? Eh, kind of a persecutor statement a bit, kind of setting the boundaries off to poke the beast. This basically takes off to where he says, humph, 
like just nothing. And so she doesn't know. So she says, you know, it's about time. This is the fourth time this month I've picked you up. You need to get a handle on this, which is a, more of a boundary statement to say she's coming more from that position. And he tells her to shut up. Now he's gone up to persecutor and now she's victim. And she says, all I'm trying to say is blah, blah, blah. Now, when she, as soon as she moves up there to that rescuer part, she's asking him to be a victim. So this goes back and forth with her and the victim and her back up to rescuer and him and a persecutor and him back in the victim. And she decides she's going to take this fight. And so essentially, because rescuing is not working, she doesn't like being a victim. So she calls him out full on like, you're nothing but a drunk. I can't believe all the money you've wasted. And then at that point, you can't persecute a persecutor. He goes into outer space to keep that spot. He'll scream in a, in a way that will scare her or, or maybe, maybe there's fighting, maybe there's hitting. But he will not take that victim role and you cannot have that persecutor. Like That's his spot, not her spot. And she will move away from that spot really quickly. That's a really good story. I mean, it's a powerful story because, you know, we're talking about victim today and, you know, we're obviously we're mentioning the other roles on the triangle. But what that really gets at is the power, the profound nature of the hurt, the wounding that the victim has that this guy, Bob, will go into absolutely outer space to scare his wife to protect himself from being that victim Mm -hmm. because Nobody wants to go back to that place in in themselves, in their, their hurt, their past, or whatever it is, and stay there and wallow in those feelings, or even just to, to get a taste of them again. They've said, for whatever reason, I never want to go back there. I'm going to do whatever I can to protect that. And ultimately, when we talk about getting off the triangle, it's not avoiding that stuff. It's not pretending it doesn't exist or denying it, stuffing it. It's actually accepting it and working through that. So that's a really good story, I think, to end on and to set us up for the next and last episode of the series, Getting Off the Fear Triangle, where we'll talk about, yeah, how do you actually work through those woundings and these like emotional manipulation kinds of things to get off the triangle. So thanks for all the input, Nate, and for giving those great stories. Hey, thanks, Aaron. This has been a lot of fun. I hope you guys all have a great day. listening to our show. Don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts to leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at shrinkthinkpodcast.com forward slash course and sign up for our free email course.